Good morning to each of you. Good to be here with you this morning. God felt and blessed so far with the practical outworkings of the Tower of Babel story. Joe led us in our class and thinking about that in relation to the message this morning. And we as humans are very prone to look for ways that we can fix the problem. And I think um, that their attempt to build that flood-proof tower was what humanity often does when we face problems, things that are bigger than we are. We try to fix them on our own, and um, we know that God has solutions that will pay attention to what He tells us and live our lives the way He wants us to. May not be comfortable, may not be popular, may not be may not be easy, but if it's God's way, the way is the best way. So this morning, uh, I'd like to uh, talk with you about the doctrine that we as Mennonite hold. The doctrine of non-resistance. And, um, I haven't heard about that. I've heard about that for a while. I believe directly, and it's been on my mind for the last while. And I guess we look at the world around us and look inside ourselves, even, and uh, we see that it's not a very popular position to have, not a very um, popular doctrine to hold. And up and down probably one this morning, this, this probably wouldn't be heard in many evangelical groups. And um, we want to look at it carefully because uh, it could be construed that we are are being critical of our country or critical or um, rebellious to authority. Uh, but we don't want to look at it in that way. We'd like to look at this subject as where our allegiance should lie, our primary allegiance should lie. Appreciate Gary's opening this morning from Psalm 3, talking about our security in the Lord. I think that's a good bedrock, a good place for us to start in a subject like this that raises lots of questions from people and even ourselves, you know, how does this thing work out? So if you don't have that security in God himself, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior and your King, it's illogical to, to practice or attempt to practice this doctrine. <clears throat> so I've got a number of reasons here that I decided to, to look at this doctrine. Um, and this has been the historical position of uh, the Mennonite Church, but not just the Mennonite the, there's called peace churches, the number of churches that hold this doctrine would be the Church of the Brethren, Quakers, Hutterites, River Brethren, uh, Amish, German Baptists, etc. And uh, 
the problem with historical positions is that that's sort of what they are. And if you don't re-examine them and reaffirm them, they can easily tend to either be a shell, a mechanical something that we claim to believe, or it can slip away. And either of those are dangerous things. So that's one reason I wanted to look at it. And um, also because this doctrine, you know, us in times of war, especially, um, you know, folks, Joe's age can look back at the draft, the Vietnam War, and the, the way that affected um, Mennonites and these peace churches and how there eventually were provisions made for COs, conscientious objectors. Uh, but during wartime or times of national crisis, you know, the, the position of non-resistance gets more attention because you're perceived as not being patriotic, or supported if you don't hold with the patriotic line. But really, uh, aside from that, Christ-like non-resistance is a doctrine of the heart that should permeate into our cores and change how we live our lives every day. Uh, even down to, as Christ taught non-resistance, it should go down to our motives and attitudes how we relate to the folks we live with, besides all the other folks around the world. So, non-resistance affects how I live my life with my family at home, as well as how I relate to Iranians or anyone else. The third reason I wanted to look at this was that, and I think this has happened, we can easily be influenced by Christian America, in quotes, by many who look at this doctrine as out of touch, or for another time, or impractical. And I'd like to counter that with a look at Jesus and his teachings and his life that I believe is a model for us for the relationships that we as God's people should have. That's three. Um, I really motivated, haven't I? So number four of my motivation is that I've been troubled lately. And it's not hard to be troubled by the news, is it? If you pay any attention to all this lots of troubling news out there. <clears throat> There's some current events and some from quite a while back stories that I read recently, some things that point out the perplexing questions that people of God have and how to relate to each other and to others in the world around us, um, and to live in this broken world. How should we follow Christ's example? What, did he mean what he said when he told us what he did? So here's a few current events that have bothered me recently, and I'm not I don't want to use these critically, but they're things that just fill us with sadness. I think when we look at humanity and some of the attempts to fix big problems in our world. So you've heard the story, I'm sure, on December 29th. Um, 
a gun and walk into a communion service in Texas and kill two ushers. And then was promptly gunned down by a carrying church member. And all the discussion about that uh, subsequent days. Early January, there was this flash of death as an Iranian terrorist was killed by the drone, <coughs> drone strike in Iraq. And there's been other death and destruction since then around the world. And the political environment in Washington, maybe you don't notice that, but I have, and it recently has been divisive beyond anything that I've ever seen or remember. And it would seem like relationships up there and And any chance of effective working together on governing the country would be permanently hampered. And then here's those are a few things, a few current events that call into question, call us to attention. Looking at the world we live in, uh, is there a better way? Is there something that a lot of us are missing? And then I read the story of the Nagasaki Christians. And I want to read that for you this morning. <clears throat> Some of it. And this is an excerpt from Dean Taylor's book, A Change of Allegiance. I also went back and read some original articles by uh, Gary Cole. And this was not something that I had remembered or ever learned in, in school, public or private. And again, it's out of, to make a statement about our nation. This, this whole world is broken and the responses from one nation to another have been very flawed. And, and uh, I know about Romans 13 and the two kingdoms and that God does use nations in in uh, adjusting things around the world. But the irony, the, the mortal irony here of what happens uh, really points out to me that Christ's way is the, is the best way for humanity. <clears throat> During the time of the Reformation, which was 1500 to 1550, God's light was being poured out in many miraculous and unexpected ways. Some people responded with theological reform. Some radically changed their lifestyle, and there were others that uh, poured their hearts into missions. There were a number of movements that started about then. One of the men was a missionary named Francis Xavier. And in 1549, by the request of a fugitive Samurai warrior named Anjiro, Xavier sailed to Japan to plant a church. Japan, that is, out in the Pacific. He was very successful. This is 1550 or so. He was very successful, and it was said of those converts that they were very zealous. Interestingly, when Francis Xavier asked Anjara, this ex sumo uh, samurai warrior, if he thought Japan would receive Christianity, he replied, they wouldn't do so immediately, 
but would first ask you many questions and see what you knew, and above all, they would want to see whether your life corresponded with your teaching. Uh, we talked a little bit about the part of the confusion of the languages. Maybe there's the power of Babel was also a, a change in people's identity or their tendency to people groups maybe to trend all this way or that way. And that's what uh, Anjara told Francis Xavier, that the Japanese people are careful in making their choices. They want to see if your life measures up to your message. Gary Coles, who wrote about this period, tells us that Christianity took root there, but in the 1600s it quickly became the target of brutal Japanese imperial persecutions. Within 50 years after the planning of Xavier's mission church, it was a capital crime to be a Christian in Japan. The Japanese Christians who refused to recant their beliefs suffered ostracism, torture, and even crucifixion similar to the Roman persecutions in the first three centuries of Christianity. After the reign of terror was over, it appeared to all observers that Christianity had been completely stamped out. Just a brutal time in Japan among these, these uh, Christians that uh, the church that Francis had, had begun. However, 250 years later, Japan was slowly opening up to, to some trade with um, Europeans and Americans, and it was discovered that there were thousands of baptized Christians that they still existed in this town, in Nagasaki, in that area. And it was now the 1850s. These Christians had lived out, were living out their faith in a catacomb existence in caves and homes completely unknown to the government. They were the hidden church there. And when they were identified, the government started another series of persecutions. Uh, this is the time they began to practice emperor worship, um, and they, they saw these Christians who came out from underground, basically saw them as a real threat. However, because of international pressure now, Japan's becoming more of a, of a part of the international community, the persecutions were soon stopped, and Nagasaki Christianity came up from the underground. So the church became uh, official, but it was uh, able to exist there and practice their Christianity. It was a Catholic-based uh, group. And in a relatively short time, by 1970, the 1917, the Japanese Christians had organized and built a massive cathedral, calling it St. Mary's. By the 1940s, thousands of people professed to be Christians in Japan. It appeared to most that Christianity was beginning to be practiced openly without fear of hostility and persecution. Of course, we know that period of time, coming up to the 40s, uh, Japan was arming. World War II was heating up. There were there was global conflict uh, beginning to happen. And here's the ironic thing: thinking about Nagasaki Church. Early on the morning of August 9th, 1945, a few young American Christians from another part of the world met with two chaplains, one Lutheran and the other Catholic a little prayer meeting before they started their day's work. What was their day's work? After the prayer, these American Christians 
climbed into their B-29 Super Fortress. long-distance bomber and begin heading from Kenan Island to Nagasaki with orders to drop the second atomic bomb. As you fly over to Nagasaki, they were to look for landmarks. There were very few landmarks large enough to, to um, identify from 30,000 feet, which was the altitude they were at. But one thing that was a landmark from that height was St. Mary's Cathedral. Shortly after the pilot identified the cathedral, he ordered the bomb be dropped. And at 11.02, as told in Cole's words, Nagasaki Christianity was boiled, evaporated, and carbonized in a scorching radioactive fireball. The persecuted, vibrant, faithful, surviving center of Japanese Christianity had become ground zero. And what the Japanese imperial government could not do in over 200 years of persecution, American Christians did in nine seconds. And the Christians of Nagasaki were totally wiped out. <clears throat> I had not heard that story until recently, and it, it just really struck home to me the, the world we live in and the attempts that mankind makes to fix things in this world is so often, they're, they're so often flawed, and we so often do more harm than good. So, but I want to proceed carefully. You know, I've presented a number of sad stories here that are symptoms of a broken world. I don't want to point fingers at our country or at anyone, but it shows us that this world needs more than ever to see the love of Christ taught and modeled by His people. And I want us to think, too, about our reactions to situations that arise. We need to think about these things before we get into a pressure situation. Uh, many times, if we are forced into a situation suddenly without having had foresight, or certainly without walking in the love of Christ in our hearts, our responses could be, uh, in, in our own circumstances, could be similar to some of those. We are blessed to live in America. With, with few exceptions, this has been a good place for God's people to live. Many, many of our forefathers came to this welcoming country looking for our place to live peaceful lives and found it. So we owe a debt of gratitude to God for the United States being our earthly home. I think our dangers here in America in the 21st century are more complacency, affluence, and the pull of the world than the persecution than, that Europe might have experienced a few short centuries ago. But it's, it's still dangerous. And when Jesus is viewed as a remote redeemer who made arrangements for passes to heaven for those who have said a prayer, fire insurance, so to speak, we miss much of the essence of Christ's kingdom. In other words, if, if being a Christian just means I have a path to heaven that I, 
I said a prayer or I took a step at one point and now got my eternity fixed, I can go on and live my life. That's not what God intended. That's not what Jesus meant when he taught us how to live and how to get along with each other. Jesus meant for his disciples to live like he did and obey him in what he taught us. So shifting gears now, and I found as I studied for this that you know these were some depressing stories to think about. It's this world we live in, it's reality for for this world. But once I started looking at what Jesus told us, it was such a refreshing change, and it resonated. It was true. It's not easy, but it's the truth and it's God's way. So I want to look now at some of the. Some of the words that Jesus meant to say to us on how to relate to enemies, to others. <clears throat> but before that, I want to point out one more thing. Um, Gary, uh, that last song we, we sang, uh, there, was, there was a phrase there. Uh, um, I forget exactly how it looks, but it, it referred to the prophecy in Daniel about the stone being cut out of the mountain. Came a large stone that filled the whole earth. That's the kingdom of God. That's Christ's church. Uh, John and then Jesus both came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. There's uh, verses in Matthew 3, Matthew 4 that talk about that gospel of the kingdom coming. Uh, Jesus said much about the kingdom of God. He said it's within you, it's near. Uh, he also said later it was not of this world. But Jesus talked much about the kingdom. He told he told Pilate, Pilate asked him, Are you a king? And he said, I am a king. For this cause was I born. This was the purpose for me coming here was to be a king. Um, that quote from John 18 is, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I unto the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So if there's a kingdom, and it was coming, and Jesus was the king, then we are his subjects, aren't we? If we're part of the kingdom, if we have been born again, we have joined that that uh, kingdom, he's our king. And he's our teacher. He's our role model. He is our leader. If we're members of Christ's kingdom, we should heed his teaching and example. And we owe our first allegiance to Him. That's the kingdom that we owe our allegiance to, first and foremost, is the kingdom of God. Now, we are citizens here in, in Virginia or the United States. Um, so we're blessed to be here. And there are responsibilities. And, and Romans talks about that. Romans 12 talks about our responsibilities to be good citizens. Um, so we don't want to minimize that at all. We have a role, and that's quite a testimony we can leave as being good citizens, not rebellious, not we should be obedient. 
But first and foremost, our allegiance needs to be to Christ, our King, because His kingdom is not of this world. We're part of something bigger than any earthly kingdom. We should be respectful and appreciative of this country, but our citizenship is elsewhere. Let's look, and probably your minds have already went there. Most people would, uh, when we talk about non-existence, the Sermon on the Mount. And that was one of Christ's, one of Jesus' early sermons. He went up into the mountain, was set there, and told the people many, many, many things, many practical things. And people say they look at this differently. Some folks say, as I've said before, you know, this is for another time. It doesn't work. Um, I remember after a, a scuffle in the parking lot at, at work years ago, there was uh, somebody that was um, causing trouble there and where I worked, and uh, some of the other fellow mechanics went out and, and uh, got into a pretty serious scuffle with him. I came back in and uh, I had not joined in. They asked me about it and I told them what I, what I thought and, and they said, well, that's all very good, but it just doesn't work. Well, let's see what Jesus said. Let's think about that. He has heard that it has been said, this is from Matthew, he has heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have the cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn not thou away. He has heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Well, that's probably the go-to scripture for the, for the doctrine of non-resistance. The teaching of Jesus. Simple, beautiful. Actually, this uh, text was used at the National Prayer Breakfast last week where um, Ms. Pelosi and Mr. Trump were both seated in the audience. And very good prayer. If you want to look it up, it would be very worth your while. The main speaker used this text. Some other teachings Jesus gave us uh, several places. Matthew 26, 52. This is towards the end of Jesus' life here in, in the scene in the garden. Then said Jesus unto him, this is to Peter, Put up again thy sword into its place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And in Luke 6, 
And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy cloak, thy coat also. In John 14, Jesus talking to his disciples talks about peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus talking about a peace that transcends trouble, not like the world gives, but something that he gives. And then in John 18, when Jesus before Pilate again, John 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. And I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from him. I have several, several verses, a number of passages actually that talk about Christ's example. What I read for you were his teachings and his words. These are, these are some examples that we have of Christ's life showing us the way. First Peter two verses twenty one to twenty five. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We're called to that life. We're called to Jesus' way of life. He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. I've recently read some arguments against the Sermon on the Mount being our pattern for life or the uh, following Christ's life as our example. And some folks would say, yes, but he had a special role. He was a redeemer. He was deity. And he had the ability to do miracles. So we're not really expected to live that way, are we? Well, it's a high standard and a high calling, but I think we are. I think these verses teach us this is the way Christ wants us to live. It doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't. It doesn't make things simple, but it is God's way. It is Christ's way, and and I think this example of suffering is usually what people are trying to get away from when we when we think of all different kinds of excuses to avoid living out Christ's commands. You know, the flesh would just like to take things into its own hands, uh, be man enough to handle this problem, and um, 
an amendment like um, the the gentleman that was involved in the shooting out in Texas. He said, "Well, there's two options when we have a problem. One is either to 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 leave and just walk away from it. The other is just stand up and do what needs to be done." And there's truth there. I know there's some truth there, but what about the third way? What about taking Christ away? What about suffering, injustice, suffering, violence even? Not a popular thing, not an easy thing, but in the, in the tenor of Christ's teaching, I think that is what he calls us to, is suffering. <clears throat> Jesus, for example, suffered. God allowed it. He suffered for a plan, for a reason. God has our lives in His control as well. Can we trust Him to direct affairs around us? Can we trust Him to allow or protect as He sees fit? Sees fit? Sees fit? <clears throat> Yeah, the teaching of Paul in Romans 12, I think, is, is very, uh, very, very uh, pointed to us as well. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. <clears throat> Dealing with evil requires strength and diligence, but our weapons are not of the flesh. We're told in Second Corinthians, for though we walk in the flesh, we live here in this world, but we don't war after the flesh. We war, but not with carnal weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling of down of strongholds. So, there is diligence needed. There is discipline needed. There is strength and fortitude and, and perseverance needed in the Christian's warfare but our weapons are carnal. They're not rifles and machine guns and, and swords and spears. They're, uh, they are the weapons of prayer and the weapons of submission and the weapons of um, allowing God and His sovereignty to overrule and order our lives. God is with us in this life. He understands because Jesus came. What a beautiful story. Two weeks ago, we were away for a Sunday and the minister spoke about um, and this was yes, there was a, an Amish uh, family that was hit by a buggy, that was hit in a buggy over in the Fondle area, Buckingham area, and the the fellow 
the preacher at the church we were at, his daughter, was in the ambulance when they transported the one uh, young girl to UVA. Uh, the mother was killed uh, down soon after. I'm not sure. This, this daughter was not hurt as badly, but they needed to transport her up to the pediatric care unit up at UVA. And Amish um, children often don't learn English until they go to school. So this young girl at five could hardly speak. Could hardly speak English. And it so happened that this minister's daughter, who was an EMT in the squad that transported her, uh, had been raised speaking Pennsylvania Dutch. So, sweet story uh, that she was able to explain what was going on, what was going to happen, maybe a little about her family's condition. I don't know if she knew that or not. But it was just uh, a big help that she was there and spoke. This young patient's language. And he said, You know, that's really what Jesus did. He came down here and he spoke our language and he was able to show us how to live well in this world of trouble. He spoke our language and showed us how to live and how to relate with each other. It's, um, it's a beautiful thought that he came and suffered to lead us in that path, lead us in the way of trusting God and, and his kingdom's life, and assuring us that he is with us. That makes it, makes it doable. Without his presence, this would all be just rhetoric. It would not be doable. But with Jesus' presence with us and him understanding what we go through, it makes uh, living out non-resistance to be possible even. I'll close with another story. And I want to tell you, too, that I haven't scratched the surface of this subject. There are many, many questions you could ask about how this is to work out, and what about this, and what about nations and responses, and you know what are practical outworkings of our existence? How should we then live? Um, I want to read this story though about Dirk Williams. Uh, you probably know who he was, but this this story I thought was a good one to end on. And uh, an example of an individual person, a real person, flesh and blood, who experienced persecution and um, had a heart of love even to an enemy. <clears throat> no other story of Anabaptist martyr seemed to capture more notice in the Mennonite mind than the account of Dirk Willems. Dirk was born at Aspen, Rotterdam, in the Netherlands. He was baptized, rebaptized upon confession of faith at the age of 15 in the house of Peter Willems. <clears throat> the words of the judge who later sentenced Dirk for burning at the stake condemned Dirk as having 
further in Aspen, this is part of the sentence, these are the accusations. In, in Aspen, the town of Aspen, at his house, at divers hours, he harbored and admitted secret conventicles and prohibited doctrines, and that he has also permitted several persons to be rebaptized in his aforesaid house, all of which is contrary to our holy Christian faith and to the decrees of his royal majesty and ought not to be tolerated but severely punished for an example to others. That was part of the decree that uh, they used when they sentenced him to death. <clears throat> Dirk had been apprehended, tried, and convicted. He was a young man, only in his 20s, I believe. He'd been tried, convicted as an Anabaptist in the latter years of the harsh Spanish rule under the Duke of Alba in the Netherlands. The Spanish had conquered the Netherlands and they inflicted the Inquisition that they were carrying out elsewhere on these, on these uh, people as well. So he'd been caught and accused and he was, uh, he was locked up in a residential palace prison, not too closely guarded, um, because he was able to escape. The way he got out was he took a sheet, traditional way, tear it into strips, knotted, and made a rope out of it. So he let himself down out of a window uh, with that rope and dropped onto the winter, very cold. He dropped down onto the ice of the moat outside and was able to flee. He started to run. Um, but as he was escaping, a palace guard saw him and began to pursue him with others behind him. The burgomaster, the, the, the guy in charge was after him too, but this, this um, prison guard was, was pursuing him as he fled. Dirk's weight had been reduced by the short prison rations. He'd been in long enough, he'd lost some serious weight because of being underfed. So he crossed the thin ice of a pond, the, the Hondigat, safely, but his heavier pursuer broke through the ice. Dirk was running hard as he could to get away to escape. He knew what was up, he'd been sentenced to death already. And he knew that was what was waiting for him. So that was adding wings to his feet as he ran. Cross that ice, safe on the other side, and, and ready to, to really run. But he heard something behind him. His pursuer had, his heavier pursuer had broke through the ice and was, was slipping down into the cold, cold water. So what did Dirk do? He... Without hesitation, it appears, he turned back and helped the man. He rescued the man. The, the guard was all for letting him go, turning, turning him loose, but the burgomaster on the opposite side kept calling, hey, be true to your oath. You have sworn an oath to be faithful to the, to the king, to the, to the rulers. You're, you have an obligation. And... The man knew, the guard knew that his life was in jeopardy as well. He didn't have the love of Christ in his heart that Dirk did. So he hung on and reinforcements arrived. Dirk didn't fight. He was seized again and returned to prison. 
they took him to a more secure prison that time. was actually at the top of a very tall church tower. Um, he was locked up in there, probably into wooden stocks. There are some still there in that town today. And he was condemned for execution. And after not many days, he was retried and resentenced. Same sentence. He was sentenced to death. And they think it was May the 16th of 1569. This is from the Martyr's Mirror, that thick book of martyrs that uh, many of you know about. And this is, this is how he died. It is related as true from the trustworthy memoirs of those who were present at the death of this past witness of Jesus Christ that the place where this offering occurred was without Aspen, outside the town walls, on the side of Leardam, and that a strong east wind was blowing that day, and the kindled fire was much driven away from the upper part of his body as he stood at the stake, in consequence of which this good man suffered a very slow death, a lingering death, insomuch that in the town of Leardam, towards which the wind was blowing, he was heard to explain over seventy times, O oh my Lord, my God, because of the pain that the fire, the wind was blowing and it was hot and he was burning, but it wasn't flaming up to, to asphyxiate him. He wasn't breathing in the flame. He wasn't, so his upper body was still, he was able to breathe. A lot of uh, burning victims died quickly because they were overcome with flames and, and in, in smoke inhalation. But this was a particularly painful death for, for Jerk. And the town, which wasn't far away to Leardam, they overheard him from there crying out to God, Oh, my Lord, my God. Eventually, the, the judge or bailiff who was present on horseback convicted him so badly that he wheeled about his horse and turned his back toward the place of execution and said, told the executioner, dispatch this man with a quick death. Put an end to this. And they rearranged the flame and added more fuel to the fire and eventually uh, Dirk died. Dirk is regarded as a folk hero now in the town of Aspen. Uh, they've named a street in his honor. Um, he's regarded as a folk hero, but we look on Dirk as a follower of Jesus' way and an uh, example for us as we live our lives and how we relate to those around us, close to home or our enemies. What do we how do we relate to them? How do we uh, think about them? Uh, are we able to love our enemies? So that was, I want to leave that with you for, uh, um, to hold Dirk up as an example. First of all, Christ as our example, our Savior, our teacher. We are His disciples. And walking in the way of love that Christ taught us a good way. It's the best way. Uh, heaven holds a special place for suffering Christians. Uh, if you look in Revelation, stand there, and there will be one that overcame, overcame by the blood of the Lamb. 
and uh, through suffering. Uh, there's a special, special place in heaven, in heaven for suffering Christians. So let's not be swayed into trying to use logic and and um, reasoning to fix the big problems in our world. Let's look at things around us and the people we have to relate to every day and try to relate to them in Christ's way, the way Christ would. And I, I like to remember Dirk's dying words that he kept repeating, Oh my Lord, oh my God, that in the press of doing the right thing at a rough moment, and remember that God is with us. He cares about us. He's right there with us, whether it's in the fire or in the discussion or disagreement. God is with us. He's right there and 